I may not be a shaker, but by God, I'm a mover. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 79 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our podcast we have David Brady. <laughs> Next! <laughs> <laughs> we also have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Uh, Josh Susser. Hey from uh, uh, Socialist Communist California. <laughs> uh, James Edward Gray. <laughs> Uh, we're recording this the morning after the election. We woke up in a different world, and we've decided the Ruby Rogues will marry immediately. Yay! And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. So it's the morning after the election. Do they have a pill for that? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm no. a profan. No. <laughs> no, we decided at this election, we have to keep the president. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, we, we still have a fit of the laughs just from the pre-show, so I'm sorry to everybody for that. Uh, but, but we're in a great mood this morning, so moving yes. right along, what do we yes. have? Yeah, <laughs> so, so this week we're going to be talking about documenting code, but before we get started, we do have a few things. First off, I want to just mention that we wrapped up the Ruby Newbie project uh, last week, and um, you can be expecting announcements of the winners this next week. We have to get the folks from the Rogues Golf contest and from this contest onto the show, but because of the holidays and just uh, you know not wanting to really deal with scheduling issues, we're probably going to be doing those episodes after the beginning of the year. But thanks to everybody who submitted, they were awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We we got a yeah. ton, and they were great. Yeah, we we have what? How long is it, James? It's like over two hours of videos. To yeah, it's about two and a half hours of video. That's great. That's awesome. Yep. And then um, we also have Best of Parlay. Were you going to do that, Josh? Yes. I, uh, the, the best uh, thread I saw in Parley last week, it, it, it was, there were a couple good ones. But the one that I'm picking is, was titled Crafting Outside the Technology World. And in that, uh, Rod Jenkins was commenting on uh, a discussion we had about craftsmanship outside of the programming world. And I, I think that came from the conversation we had with Amy Hoy. And then we just had a thread where people talked about the things that they do uh, outside of programming that are about craftsmanship for them, or craftspersonship. And, uh, and it, it's, it's off to a good start, and I've already discovered a couple good things from there, um, including finding that um, one of our uh, RLA members uh, is actually an amazingly good photographer, and uh, that's Chris Hunt, and I'm really enjoying uh, the photos on his website. So... Uh, we, have, we have a couple good photographers in the group, it turns out. Anyway, those, uh, it's, it's nice to have uh, something tangentially related to coding that uh, enriches the, the um, environment there. So that's it. Awesome. So go sign up for Parlay. You can find the sign-up form on rubyrogues.com. All right, well, let's get this conversation started. Documenting code. Documenting code. Yeah, so do, do we... 
do we have a specific set of questions around this? This this came from the from the user voice forum, right? It did yes, come it from did. the user voice. Yeah, I think they were just asking more in general about practices of documenting code. But I mean, we could probably take it at, at many different levels. You know, from uh, probably down to you know low level comments. You know, up to high level project documentation and such. Okay. Yeah. I. I you know, maybe it's good to to start mapping out the space that way. I'll, I, I do want to uh, start with a disclaimer here about my background, and that's that I spent a couple years doing technical writing in the 90s, or the, I guess the early 2000s, when I needed a break from programming. And so I spent two years as a tech writer. And, and even when I was a developer, I did a lot of work uh, writing specifications and, uh, and API documentation for code that I'd written. So I think I know a lot about this topic, which might make me dangerous. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about things at that level because I'm, I'm kind of curious there. You know, if we have the specs and the documentation, but um, one thing that I've seen as an issue with some of those things is that they don't always reference the code, or the code doesn't always reference the the, the high level documentation, and so it's sometimes hard to you know use one as a manual for the other. Yeah, let, 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 can we can we put that on the back burner for just a moment and and have the you know before we get into those particular issues maybe we can like map out the space and okay and and discuss how we want to address it. Right. So so at the lowest level, like James said, there's comments and then and there's different kinds of comments, right? You've got like the comment that you actually put inside code to clarify what's going on versus say something like an rdoc comment, which is like actually a structured comment that's supposed to be turned into some kind of documentation. Yes, yeah, so, oh, so, rdoc. So, right, so, so there are, I think, two audiences for, for code documentation. There's um, documentation for people who have to write more of the code, you know, you know, people who are maintaining the code, I call that internal documentation. And then there's external documentation, which is uh, you know, a manual for how to use the code. You know, mm -hmm. by a by a client. So, like documentation for an API. Right? Oh, that's a good question. There's actually a third audience that I'm running into in our current uh, project, and that is um, the kind of paperwork that you give to a potential investor that you're hoping to sell the company and the software to. It's an interesting. Thought. Whoa. Well, it, yeah. It, and it's kind of like a due diligence thing. Like, oh, so did you write your code? This is code is supposed to be PCI and HIPAA compliant. So, uh, where's your where's your meter of documentation? That that doesn't sound like code documentation to me. That sounds sounds like something else. You'd think that. You'd think that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, well, I, I'm willing to entertain that as a as a third category of of code documentation. So, can, so can we pick on the lowly little comment, the one that's buried inside the method? I'd like to comment on that for just a second. Go and, right ahead. And no, my thought my thought is, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, my my, my favorite uh, favorite comment on that is a comment is a lie waiting to happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I, there are some very rare scenarios uh, where I will put a comment in, and one I can think of that I do tend to use uh, fairly regularly is like if I'm going to rescue an exception, but it's okay for nothing to happen in that particular case. So I'll have like a rescue, but then there would be like a blank line between the rescue and the end. Then I will typically throw a comment in there to say why it's okay for nothing to happen. You know, because oh, that's, that's that's not a normal that, scenario. That's yeah. fun because I have a shorthand for that. Oh, um, what's that? 
comment space and then a winky smiley. So comment semicolon hyphen close paren. And that is that is a very explicit shorthand. What that smiley is is a happy little no op. That is the uh. happy little no op. That is the official name of that little block of code. And what it means is you're expecting something to happen to here, but nothing happens here. Winky winky, keep moving. So I I, I usually put the actual word no op. I usually describe why it's okay for nothing to happen. That's because like, you that, you're a better programmer than me. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I, I'm with James on this one where you're explaining why this particular bit of code is exceptional in some way. So, okay, so let's, let me, let, I want to hit that real quick because every time I hear, uh, you know, uh, a case made for a particular comment, I always want to think about, like, okay, is there any way I could think of to, to not put a comment in that case. Not that this is necessarily always a good idea. I mean, Correct. I'm not 100% against comments, but I always want to think like is there would there have been a way to avoid it without making this the code less clear? 90% and, of the time the answer is define a method. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And and so in that case, if I I think if I had to do it, particularly if I had to, had to do it more than once, I would write a method which took a block whose sole job was to to catch that exception and do nothing with it, and the name of the method would actually explain why you know ignore exception because blah blah blah. Uh, like no, no op handler or ex- ignore ignore handler or something like that. Yeah, right. And that's that's the right answer for about ninety percent of all comments. When you are forcing yourself to clarify what's going on. It means the code itself doesn't clarify what's going on. Yeah. So just tuck it in a method that says that thing, right? Yeah. And then- but just just to clarify, David, um, I, I I would not. I don't think I would name a method like that no op or something like you know no op on exception or something like that. Just because uh-huh. that wouldn't really add much. Right. What, so what of, is a what is a? I agree with you. What is a good name there? Like ignore ignore timeout because we don't care or something like that. I don't know. Um, okay. It's probably a bad example, but yeah, f- f- uh, fail fail with silent grace. I mean, the, the, yeah, but yeah, fail with silent grace is the same as creating a method that says no op. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not fail silently mm-hmm. is intention relieving. Is intention relieving? <laughs> intention revealing. Yeah. Where? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so there's another approach to to this, and that you know, we don't just have code; we also have tests and. One of my, one of my uh, one of my standard moves is when I find myself wanting to put a comment in the code, that like literally the first thing I I think of after oh can I do an intention revealing uh, method extraction is can I write a test case that explains what's going on here? Right. And yeah. I- there, there there are pros and cons to this, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy about certain types of documentation, is that then you have to go look in another place. The flip side is is that if you're writing comments in your code, you're cluttering your code. So I, I don't I don't know what the perfect answer is, but the fact that I have to go look in a test file doesn't completely appeal to me, even though I will oh, oh, be running oh, the oh, test. Okay, okay, Chuck, I'm wagging my finger at you for trying to read code without looking at its tests. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I do I do sympathize in some way though. I mean I mean in, in a way he's right. Like you know, I, I also agree that when you're reading code and you should be looking at the tests and stuff, but sometimes, like if you crack open a piece of code and you just look at some random method, say because a stack trace led you there or something, 
it's not always easy to jump straight to the correct test file. Right. 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 And it, it's sometimes difficult to, to know exactly where that coverage is. Yeah, if there were even like some reference in there that I could just, you know, click or move to, that would be enough. Yeah. But, yeah. but then you're adding comments to the code or adding clutter to the code. And I haven't really found a way that I like that does this really well. So, mm-hmm. And there's also the fact that like 80% of, of the tests that I stumble across um, in the real world, very likely including some of my own, I'm definitely including some of my own, make for really bad documentation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, That's true. and, you know, I've seen a lot of tests that just really ignore the, the, the documentation aspect of, of testing completely. Um, and, and it's, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, you know, we don't have, have oodles of time to, to format things like a, like, like great literature, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of little things you can do. Like if you're using RSpec, you can just, you know, run with dash FS and, and look at the spec doc that it outputs and see if it reads in a sane way or if it, mm-hmm. or, you know, or if it doesn't make sense. I see a lot of, and I see a lot of stuff like if you just read what you had just written, you would often say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't read like documentation. Cause I see a lot of like R spec tests or even, or mini test spec tests that say something like it two plus two equals four. Okay, that's yeah, not English. Right. Right. It two plus two equals four is not English. Mm-hmm. What are you? What is? And and very often that you know points to the fact that that the test doesn't have a um, a, a, a concrete subject in mind because there's there's nothing that, that the it applies to. So yeah. yeah. The, okay. So so I I agree with what you say in the general case. However, when I find myself wanting to put a comment in the code and I decide instead to create a test case that documents that. I'm pretty good at writing a test case that documents it. That's a very good point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. The the this is a very small elephant in a tiny room. Uh, but be aware also that a test case documentation is designed to take somebody who doesn't understand the code and teach them how it works. And tests make sure that the code works. But tests do something in addition, and that is that tests ferret out all of the edge cases. And as documentation goes, if you throw all the edge cases right up in front at, at the user at the beginning of the manual. They'll never understand what's going on. And so, uh, Josh, you're probably, I'm going to pick on you just because I, I'm guessing, and one of you other guys jump in if I'm wrong, that you've probably got the best feel for this. How do you organize around that so that your test suite, um, I mean, I'm, the magic number I'm thinking of, or the answer I'm thinking of is we should, ref, you know, step four is refactor your tests. But how do you make sure that your test suite reads like documentation? I really like the nested contexts within our spec for that. Yes. And you know, you know, the, the, the shoulds and, and all that stuff in our spec, I'm, I, I've gotten used to them by now, but uh, you know, they're not really my, my favorite syntax for, the, for assertions. Right. However, the hierarchical nesting of contexts and describe blocks I think is great. And I have a lot of, of uh, spec files done, you know, done in our spec that I use those nested contexts to describe all of the different edge cases. It's, it, I mean, it's perfect for that. So, okay, yeah. Um, another another thing I'll say is it, to that is that you can. I've done the exercise of deliberately writing a spec with the intention of making it be documentation, and and the way I went about that was just I w- I thought up the most basic use case, and then I wrote that the way I would want to write it in like a readme, and then I wrote some assertions after it to make sure that it that it worked, and then I wrote the test you know the code that would make it work. And I basically proceeded forward from most basic use case 
then gradually coming up with with edge cases and you know and and I also inserted some comments into into the 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 tests and that was my way of you know structuring it the same way like a readme would be structured and also you know as a side effect structuring how I wrote the code that you know ordering how I wrote the code that way I have to say I'm much more forgiving of comments in tests as opposed to in the code itself and and the reason is sure is is and we're going to come back to this in intention revealing code you know if if you have to put a comment in you know 90 90 to 95% of the time it's an indication that your code isn't clear enough and it, yeah. it, and so i like to coin it as a code smell um just because it's an indication of some deficiency mm-hmm. in the code in this <clears throat> case it's the communication of the code as opposed to the functionality okay so can we can we can we put a nail in the coffin of literate programming then if comments are, are, are always bad things to be avoided and literate programming is basically comment-oriented programming, right. <laughs> yeah. you know, isn't, isn't a literate program just nothing but lies? <laughs> well, but I will say that when I did that exercise, and I, I, I'll put the, the spec file in question in the, um, in the show notes, I was coming at it explicitly guided by the, the, the ideas of literate programming. Of course, the comments went into the spec, not into the end code, but... Yeah, I'll say that I think I think literate programming is helpful in like teaching code, maybe like, you know, when you're like, okay, so then we need to do this and that would look like this. You know, I, I find that kind of helpful. But Well, I've, oh. I've gone and organized things. For example, if, if I have a series of steps I need to take, then, you know, I'll go in and I'll pseudocode in comments. But as soon as I have a line of code or a series of lines of code that translate directly to that um, that line of comment, I delete it. So you can move through things that way. I, I'm not sure if that's the same thing as liter- literate coding, though. Um, I, yeah, I have something that I want to I throw out, which is things that document your code that don't live in your um, in the source code files or you know, like don't live in your project files. Can, can, and, I, can I jump can I, on um, something that lives <laughs> in the source code file real fast? Because there's something else that I want to nail down. Okay. Yeah, sure. I, I can come back to it. Because we're, we're talking about these comments in the code. The other one that drives me crazy is the RDoc style uh, method definition crap that goes in front. And yes, yes. Can we talk about this? It, it, yeah. is, it is ugly as sin. And what it is, is it's basically what people put there when they don't know how to name their methods or name their arguments. Okay, so I want to I want to bookmark and back up just a little bit. We're all we're all trying to insert a debug statement at the end of the previous thing. I will accept that literate programs are just a pack of lies, but I also want to throw out there because we ran into this in our project, our current project. A test file is nothing but a pack of lies until you execute it, <laughs> and okay. and we had a test suite that did not get executed for about three months, and it wasn't it. by the time somebody found it and tried to run it, there had been an architectural flaw in our entire freaking system for three months, and it took me all weekend to ferret it out, and I'm very angry about that. So, Well, well did, did, you didn't do test-first development. Yeah, basically the engineer who wrote that piece of code failed to execute it, and yeah, there, there will be some summary executions uh, at our next retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why, well, I, I, that's why it's helpful always to put in that BS test right at the beginning and watch it fail so they know that it's actually wired into the system, you know? Yeah. I've made that mistake a couple of times where I'm like happily programming along and like, 
wow, everything's green. I'm so smart today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's why red is good. You want to start <laughs> right, with red. Right. Yeah. All right, the so green I've, dot is a lie. Yeah. So back I've to one... Ardock. Oh yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. I I just. I, I know that there are about four other areas that we want to talk about. And I want Go to ahead. We'll get to our doc. What did you want to say, Avi? Uh, on the topic of inline comments, uh, I actually put the, co- the, the question out a few weeks ago. Show me an example of code where the inline comment was necessary. And I got some interesting replies. Unfortunately, I don't have a comprehensive list of them in front of me. But the one thing that, that was repeated over and over was odd handling oddities of other people's libraries. That's a great one. That was mm. that was the one the the one example that I saw over and over it was either handling some oddity of a ruby built-in library or handling some weird aspect of some gem explaining either why we are, you know, calling an oddly or or rescue an exception or even explaining why we're monkey patching it that, you know, that kind of thing. And, and is there a way to get around that? I I think that if you create a, a sane adapter layer yeah, that would be my first thought, too, is, like, whenever I'm going to interface with some other system, I want to put a layer in there that at least lets me, like, mock from my layer instead of theirs and stuff. Right. But here's and the question. Do you put those, do you still put that comment into the adapter? Yeah, it's a good question. If you have to do some strange thing because it requires it, I would say yes. I actually like that reason for a comment. I think I would support it. I, I, I want to kind of generalize it a little bit because I do use inline comments in the case where, again, there's something about the code that I would expect this and I'm seeing this. So I'm expecting one thing and I'm seeing another. And so it clarifies that intention in a way that nothing else really can. Yeah. Josh, yeah. Josh said, said the, the words intention revealing method. And that's, you know, that's a pattern from... Small talk best practice patterns. And I think that is worth pointing out is that, you know, intention revealing method and intention revealing variable are both very viable approaches to avoiding comments, you know, where you, it, it's okay to factor out a method or a variable solely for the purpose of documentation, even though it's not drying anything up. Oh, uh, I would say okay. it's not just okay, it's desirable. Right? Yeah. You know, if, if you can, if you can explain what's going on in the name of a method, then, you know, and it's, it's unclear otherwise. You know, think about pulling it out into that method and and having the method name say exactly, even if the method name is kind of chatty. I think that's okay. So yeah, yeah but I'd recommend staying under a fifty character length limit. Yeah. True. So I have a I have a line of code for you guys and the comment for it, and it's it's I would classify this as danger, uh, a deceptive danger. In other words, this code looks deceptively simple, but it is simply deceptive. The line of code was. New seed equals seed times four two nine four nine six seven two nine five modulo six nine oh six nine. Now we extracted that to rand, right? This, this is a random number generator, but mm. we we put so the, so rand was def rand, and then it had a static. This was in C. It had a static member variable that held the seed, and it multiplied it by two to the thirty second minus one, and then it moduloed this by six nine oh six nine, which is a prime number, by the way. There was a comment. This was a four-line method. There was, there was you know, the, the define, the line of code, and then the, cl- the close curly brace. The fourth line of code was a comment, and it said, these numbers are magic. Do not change them unless you have read Newth Volume 2. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, that's because <laughs> because we had people coming in and changing those numbers. What happens if you change this number? And the answer is apparently nothing. The game still seems to work, except that you've completely broken the random number generator. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. I, and that's I, fair I, enough. Yeah, I, I, I feel like have I have to break. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Have we spent enough time on comments? I just want to get my my, my funniest comment. Go for it. Um, <laughs> Uh, line in there. I, I've probably brought this up before, but once I ran across a piece of code, it, it was C code, so it had a pound define that was, that was defining a constant. The constant's name was 5, its value was 7, and the comment <laughs> 11. <laughs> that is nice. absolutely the best comment right. ever. Let, awesome. me, let me add one more tiny thing about comments. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, do you put it in here for, you know, oddities you're trying to explain, especially if there are other systems. Um, but even there, be on the lookout for another way to make the code say the same thing. Like, I thought of two examples where I saw, the, saw a comment recently in the test where it said, you know, it, it nude up some object and it had a comment there about how some attribute on that object would be nil. Uh, and that was required to understand how, what the test was going to do. I removed that comment and put in a line explicitly setting that attribute to nil. Right? right. Then, then nice. you don't need the comment at all. Right. Nice. Uh, and another scenario, there was a flag being passed to a boolean or a boolean flag being passed to a method. So it's just uh, you know some method parenthesis true. You know, and then there was a comment there. Um, uh, explaining what the flag did, which is why those methods are terrible and you shouldn't write one anyway. But uh, in that case, if, it, if Ruby sometimes lets us get around this, if they're just using it as a check in like a if conditional or something, remember that a lot of things are true. So in those cases, I'll take out the word true and replace it with a symbol that explains what the flag is. Yes, yeah, I, I've been advocating that for a while and I, I've been doing that in my code a long time. Yeah. So just and, and, and if you have to pass false, I, I've I've started using a bang and then the thing that it's not. Ah, that's a neat so, idea. So I'll nice. I'll do I'll do like bang colon admin. Yeah, not nice. not admin. Mm -hmm. Very nice. nice. So just in, anyways, even even when you are tempted, I would just say make the comment your last resort. <laughs> you know, it, if you can make the code say it, that's so much better. Yeah. Right. Okay, now uh, last, can I finish crapping on our, our doc? Or did no. <laughs> My last comment on comments. Steve McConnell's code complete. Somebody reading the code who sees a line of code and a comment next to it in line that says something other than the code will believe the comment every time. Uh, honest, honestly, honestly, if I have if I have widget dot you know widget dot times equals well times is a bad widget dot number equals three and there's a comment that says Four. Are you really going to believe that I've got an out of sync comment, or are you going to believe that I'm using zero based math? So, Avdi, whatever that program did 11 times, I hope it did it right. Okay. Let's uh, okay. talk about RDoc. It's very important. Yeah, let me finish yeah. my rant. Okay. So, so I hate it. It's ugly. It clutters the code. But the real thing is, is that you're putting a comment in. My feeling is, is the comment should absolutely add something to the understanding of the code. And those comments are written so that they can be generated into HTML. And so they don't do that job. It's just crud that clutters up what I'm trying to get through and understand. Okay, okay, Chuck, I, I have a response to that. And, okay. 
and that's that I, I think that many of us, because we do uh, some flavor of agile development where we have you know very high bandwidth communication between team members mm-hmm. that that we're used to being able to communicate um, effectively information about what methods do you know if we have a question about something we can just go ask the other person who's working on it or maybe we're even pairing with her at the time and can find it out uh, but the if you have larger teams or especially separated teams working on APIs or you know, I write an API and you use it, but you, you know, you're on the other side of the planet in a different division of the company, then you need to, to have some sort of communication mechanism that takes the place of the high bandwidth person to person. You know, we talk to each other and stand up every day or or pair next to each other all day long. That there's just you need that communication and those kind of of block, uh, you know, structured block comments that sit before a method or in a class or something like that, those can be incredibly useful for uh, taking, for basically make, taking the place of communication or, you know, that you would prefer to have. So I think that, I think there's a place for them. I, it's not my, my, my favorite way of documenting this stuff, but it's actually really good to have some predictable, understandable way to get that information. I, I can kind of agree with that. The problem is, is that, Again, we're coming back to this intention revealing code. You know, you should be able to look at the method and, you know, look and, okay. at the arguments and understand what it does so, and what the so, intention is. So I if you so this goes back to my point earlier about there's two categories of code of documentation, internal versus external. There's are you documenting this code for someone who is going to be opening up the code and working on it or are you documenting it as an API for somebody who's going to be consuming it? And if I am using an API, I really don't want to have to open up the code and look inside it to understand how to call a method on it. I want to be able to look in the R docs or, or whatever the documentation format is and say, oh, I'm calling string reverse. I, you know, this tells me what that does. I don't have to go and, look and you know, read the C code for it to understand how it's operating. I, I think we're mostly in violent agreement because what you're saying okay. is, is I, I want to use this API. I don't want to go open up the code and see what it does. But the thing is, is when you're looking at RDoc, you're looking at an external resource anyway, because mm-hmm. it's generated HTML. So you're not going to go crack open the code. You're going to go look at that. So all of that stuff shouldn't be generated out of my code. It should be generated out of something else. It could be a readme. It could be a wiki. It could be something else. But it doesn't belong in my code. I strongly disagree. But yeah, I I don't want to have this fight right now. I don't think it's a. I don't. Yeah. You know, okay. I, I, I think that that we've both put out our positions, and we don't have to. We don't have to agree on everything. Okay. Uh, that yeah. I yeah, and 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 there's we lots just more had an election. About. I don't think we do agree on everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. it, I think it's an, a good point. I'm glad both of you have brought up your points because, in my opinion, you're both right. And that you know, I agree that there's a lot of value in there to having that API documentation. I use the API documentation of Rails all the time, you know, going in and finding out what some method does or which freaking arguments I can pass to it or whatever. Um, that is handy. However, I think it's worth considering that that's mostly handy at the advanced, intermediate, and up levels. <laughs> like, you know, if I'm a beginner and you give me the API docs, that's not helpful. <laughs> you know, it's really not. Um, and I think we do a bad job of, of catering to that 
lower level of documentation. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about that. So when I was uh, doing, you know, working at Apple and doing a lot of programming in geez, System 6 and System 7, they had this series of books called Inside Macintosh. Did anybody read any of that documentation? I've heard of them, but I haven't read them. The, so the, there, this was um, they, they did a really brilliant job with these books, and you know, there's always it's always possible to to criticize this kind of documentation because nothing's perfect. But the thing that I really liked about it was that there were two parts to the documentation for every every subject. You had your typical API reference that it went through every data structure and every API call and explained what all the pieces were in detail. And that's really important. But the other thing was that every section also had a narrative flow that said, here's how you accomplish your goals. And they would go through and say, okay, you want to do, you want to do something like, you know, uh, opening a window. Here's all the steps that you need to do. And here's, and it was, it was basically telling a story and had a lot of references out to the API reference. Mm-hmm. But it was it was basically big blocks of text with uh, pictures of examples in it, and many pages of that. And that was the part that I always read to get all the context to be able to understand all the details of the API documentation. Uh, what you just said right there is the key. The problem with API documentation is there's no context. Right? Exactly. It's yeah. that right. this method you know, does this, but do the Rails guys intend me to call this when I'm in the controller? Is this thought of as like a view thing? I don't know that when I'm looking at that one methods documentation. That's really interesting because I'm working with a team of .NET refugees and their one biggest gripe with Ruby is that they're coming from Microsoft. And I I hate to utter the dark tongue of Mordor on this podcast, but they could open up the MSDN by hitting F11 or whatever on, on any function, and it would open up the MSDN reference to it, and it would give them the entire method call, the data types of everything, what the legal, like if it was an integer, they would then tell you these are the legal values for, for this integer range because we're really passing in, you know, an enum or whatever here. And then you had three, you know, at, at least one, but sometimes as many as three or five examples of working chunks of code that used that piece of API to show you why you would use it and how you would use it in context. The thing that makes this really interesting is that the two places now that that we know did this were Apple and Microsoft. We're not seeing this in a lot of the open source communities. Is that because that there's no market for this product or because nobody thinks it's interesting to go build this? I would love for this to exist in Rails. So I've seen a fair number of open source projects that have good documentation in this regard. If you look at um, something like Devise and go to their wiki, there's a ton of examples. There's a ton of, of goal-oriented documentation. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, you know, I don't think they generated it by uh, any like, you know, magical tool that did it, and there's, yeah. no, there's no magical way to, to integrate it with the code so that you can you know, hit F11 and find that stuff. Right. But, that's an but, IDE th- yeah, that's an IDE thing. But the fact that they've created these uh, scenario-oriented documents or docu- pieces of documentation is, I think, great, and that makes those libraries much more usable. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to point out, Chuck, when I said I strongly disagree with you, 
the the only point I was disagreeing with you is that the farther documentation gets away from the code it is documenting, the less likely it is to be accurate or kept up to date. And so the whole dox, doxygen was one of the things that really started this back in the C days. Actually, I think doxygen may have actually come out of Java and then got backported to, to C. But anyway, that was a thing to, you could write comments that could then you could look, there's the comment, there's the code. Are these in sync? Yes, they are. Okay, good. And then somebody else could generate the document. That, yeah, so I kind of agree with that, but at the same time, uh, let me pop the stack just a little bit with um, uh, what David was just saying on the, you know, how the Microsoft documentation is so discoverable. I think that's a real flaw and actually uh, a major problem with our doc in general. I actually have a long list of complaints about our doc now. But uh, one thing is anybody listening to this absolutely needs to go read the article on learnable programming. I think I've brought it up a couple of times now. But um, it's really about you know uh, how, how we discover things and, and how we see them in context and stuff like that. It's a long article. It takes a while to read. But it's absolutely very worth it because it helps you understand how documentation should relate. And basically, if you if you start going through this checklist, our doc fails at like item one. It's not, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't meet the needs. However, what you were just saying there about, and I do agree with uh, that, you know, as the documentation gets farther away, doesn't that increase its chance to get out of date? Well, okay, first of all, when we, when we split that documentation out from the method, it's now maintained in two places, right? The, code mm-hmm. itself and the method. So at that point, it's a dry violation, you know, at least. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, there's, I've seen plenty of cases where I'm sitting there reading the code and I'm reading the documentation directly above it thinking, no, it doesn't do that, you know. So yeah. it, it definitely can happen. But also, I think that's maybe a failing of our tools. Uh, there's certainly ways they can handle that better. For example, when uh, the tool uh, extracts the external documentation, it can tag it with a, a SHA of the current method content. And then in the future, when it's generating documentation, if that SHA changed, it would know that it's out of sync, you know, yeah. or could give you a warning to, to say if it's still valid or something. As a, as a perfect example as of the utterly wrong solution to obviously the right problem, this documentation, even right next to the code, can get out of sync. And so one of the doxygen variants, and I want to, I can't remember which language it was in. I want to say it was PHP. You could actually specify, like, invariants in the doxygen block, and it would emit unit tests for you. And all of a sudden, you had developers writing their whole test suite in the comments to the code. And right problem absolutely wrong solution because now you have a test suite that you can't read mixed in with code that you can't read. It was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> That's awesome. Mm. I wanna, that is I wanna, amazing. I'm, I'm confident it was, now that, it, now that I've defined it in that context, I'm confident it was PHP. <laughs> I want to hit on one more aspect of our doc. This one's kind of hard to explain, but it's another reason to me why I, I I, I really think we have not nailed this domain, and I keep waiting to see uh, even even you know documentation living alongside code. Um, I, I really feel like we got a long way to go there, and I, I keep waiting to see the good competitor. But as another way to explain it, there was a big change in a recent version of Ruby where RGEF basically got its own class or something like that. 
which sounds kind of weird and esoteric until you realize that probably one of the primary motivators of this change was to be able to document what the heck argf is. And in RDoc's current form, it's actually almost impossible, right? I mean, try to RDoc a while loop. You know, you can't right. because we can't RDoc keywords. Perl does better in that regard in that it, it can allow you to arbit, uh, document keywords or even arbitrary things, uh, even things like FAQs and stuff. So I think Perldoc is, is uh, quite a bit superior in that way. But it's kind of a symptom of RDoc, right, in that we can only tie documentation to these certain things, classes, modules, methods, etc. But there are lots of things in a program that aren't those elements. So what, how are we documenting those elements if we're going with our dog? For example, what do you do if it makes perfect sense in this one case to have a method missing that services 20 different methods? Okay, so then how do you document that? Because putting the documentation on method missing is stupid. That's not what I'm calling. Right. You know? And th there's elements to the program, like Josh said, there's context of, you know, that, yeah, you know that this method does this, but actually it's related to this really important configuration file. Where do we document that, the contents of that configuration file or whatever? And to me, that's kind of a reason why this whole system is flawed, in my opinion, and not a correct approach. That's my personal opinion. I wonder if Smalltalk could fix this. Okay, so, 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 so no, I'm not kidding. I'm not. No, I know no, it's funny. Dude, I'm not dude, kidding. It is funny, and I know you're not kidding. Yeah, so, so, so I, I want to use that opportunity to segue to a new topic, uh, and that's integrated documentation. So, so this Can is I one get of the a definition. Sure, integrated documentation is documentation that is integrated into the structure of your program. So, uh, so in Smalltalk, every class had a couple strings that were associated with it that were the documentation for the class. And Doesn't Python also have dark strings? Right? Which it got, uh, from, it got from Lisp, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so this At least was, the term. Th 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 yeah, this is not unique to Smalltalk. There's plenty of languages that do that. Uh, Joseph Alim's Elixir language also integrates documentation. And the it, so it's, it, it's a very interesting thing. What In... Um, in, in Smalltalk, when you define a method, there's a place where you can, you know, it's like, oh, you just put a comment right at the top of, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of this stuff that's just integrated into the, doc, into the development environment. And there's other, other environments and languages that do a better job than Smalltalk did, too. And just to be very clear, we're talking about something where you can actually ask the object at runtime about its documentation. Yes. Yeah, it's part, it's part of the metadata integrated into the program. And, and, and now, uh, a good example of this in Ruby is Rake, right? With the DESC method where you describe the task. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you know, the, have, just having a place where you could put information like that meant that people were more likely to do it. Sure. And, and, provide, provide more trash cans, people litter less, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, so that part was pretty good. But... You know, still comments are lies waiting to happen, and it was incredibly common that people would not keep their uh, the integrated documentation in sync with the code either. Ooh, big epiphany! Comments are not lies waiting to happen. Comments are lies waiting to be gotten away with. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's the difference between a unit test and a comment. There's there's no way to check a comment, but you can check your unit test. That's true. Yep. So what are the pros and cons to that approach, Josh? Oh well, I, I can think of a few. I think, I, like I said, I think I, th- I think I've I've probably said them already. That right. it, the pr- a pro is you have a place where you can put stuff, so it's sort of an attractor for information and. Yeah. And it's more likely that people will will create that. In in small talk, we called it. There's the like the class comment. When you define a class, there's a there's you get a whole window where you can just type in whatever disc, you know text you want about the class and how to use it. And uh, that was a pretty common thing that people would do. The, and then there was, um, it, but the downside, as I said, is that stuff can get out of sync, and there's no way you can really rely on that. I, I I've seen a um, a lot of attempts over the years of people to try and turn those things into stuff that um, was semantically integrated into the language or the development environment where like our tests and our specs are but have it be more oriented towards uh, documenting the code or understanding the code rather than you know being able to assert things about the code are true right yeah and 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 some of those are somewhat successful, but mostly it's you know it's it's basically a hard AI problem, and we don't we don't have the capability of solving hard AI problems yet. The problem right. is is that that the way we approach our code right now is one dimensional. You start at the top of a file and you move down, and you have instruction, 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 instruction. Well, somewhere over here you've got another sequence of instruction, instruction, instruction that is test. For your code, but there's no way to link the two. And if you could, that that that's what what it, why I originally said I wonder if Smalltalk could, could solve this because Smalltalk isn't a one-dimensional programming environment anymore. It's this living ecosystem that you could work from. So I mean, I I've seen attempts to do. It actually makes me sad, Josh, that you say that even in Smalltalk these can get out of sync. I've seen attempts to do things where somebody will put a SHA tag, a comment in the code. That's a you know some tag, and you've got Emacs trained to know where that tag is defined, and you can jump between those two. You know, it's like a, like a named anchor point, if you will, between two places in the project. And it, what you're trying to form is a horizontal ligature between these vertical one-dimensional lines. Man, I, have I am I just downwind from Colorado? No, 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 no d- dude. I, I I totally understand what you're saying. I don't yeah, know if it's, I, I don't know I if it's because do. I'm sitting in San Francisco in an hour. Good point. Right. Yeah. I actually but, agree, though. But like, think about it. It, it. That doesn't just apply to documentation. What David just said. Like, for example, when when I really started to get good at object orientation, I had to let go of that fact. That that linear, you know, we're going to start here and go down. You know, it's more like, now it's more like, I'm going to register this observer and they're going to work it out. You know, like, I had to let go of the fact that I could go line by line by line and show the execution, you know. All right, well, I we've been talking about this for about 45 minutes and we've talked a lot about kind of the internal or included documentation. Mm-hmm. I. I would love to get into like the README and tutorial or you know external documentation. Mm-hmm. Let's okay. absolutely make a stop at the README. That's important yeah. stuff. 
Right. I, I think a great place to start with that is Tom Preston Werner's Read Me Driven Development article. I had that open in my browser. I was going to link to it. Yep. Ha, yes, I finally got you. <laughs> I, I honestly love the concept of the Read Me Driven Development where you essentially you, you write out what you want it to be and then you go build it. So any, has anyone else ever done automated Read Me Development? Read Me Driven Development? What? What, what does that mean? Automated? Nope. <laughs> Is that like so, ARDD? That's really close to ADD. So I, um, I've taken a crack at this. Uh, James, you've, I know you've seen this because you've commented on the um, – when I uh, a while back I did a little, little teeny tiny gem for named uh, keyword arguments, uh, a form of keyword right, arguments. Right. And in order to, to write that teeny tiny gem, I started out with a readme file, which – for simplicity, I think I just made it a Ruby file where, where the text was in, was, was in comments. But basically, I wrote a comment and, you know, starting out, and then I wrote, like, the most basic example I could think of of using this gem that didn't exist yet. And then I wrote a little bit of machinery that would run the file through XMP, XMP filter, which if you're not fam familiar with XMP filter, some of you may have seen me use it in Ruby Tapas. Uh, you can run a piece of Ruby code through it, through it that's, that's adorned with some special, some special insert output here comments, and it runs, you know, it runs the file, and then it inserts the output of each or the the value at each point where you uh, where you put one of those special comments, and it inserts the output of the of the file at the end. And so I wrote a little bit of machinery that would run the README, and and it would take the um, Take what I had put after those, what I had entered after those little special uh, adornments, and then it would it would compare that with the output where those where where the values that I had put in were replaced with the values that XMP filter had generated, and a success was when they matched. So success was when you know my example of what the code what the value of a given variable would be uh, was the same as what came out the other end of XMP filter. Failure was when there was a diff. And it would actually it would it would then output the diff between the README that I had written and the README that came out the other end of XMP filter. That is genius. I had wow. forgotten you did that, and I just went and looked at it again while you were explaining it. Everybody should go look at it. I threw a link in the show notes. I'm definitely um, going to go do that because I have a project where I'm trying to, or I'm trying to to factor that out actually into its own that that process out into its own gem. But I haven't uh, I haven't touched it in a long time. I am definitely going to take a look at that because I, I did RDD about six months ago on a project called Polyhedra. And if you go to Debrady, GitHub Debrady slash Polyhedra, you will find a readme that completely describes an RPG dice class and then a program that implements about half of it. Um, yeah. and, and the other half of my, my readme is a lie that has waited and successfully had its opportunity to be a lie. <laughs> hmm. So one so, I wanted to make one comment about what that drove me. One thing that kind of drove me to do is it drove me to have an easily readable textual representation, you know, and concise textual representation of any kind of value or state that the program might have so that I could easily, like, I could put in my version what I thought it was going to be, and then, um, you know, and then it could generate its own version of, of what that actually looked like. So I like the idea of, of what you're doing to keep your README and your code in sync. I just wanted to say, we've talked a lot about README-driven development. Obviously, we consider that required reading for this discussion, and you should go check it out if you haven't. But it's probably just worth stating the README is like of very, very high-level importance. 
reasons, right? There's a reason that GitHub bugs the crap out of you until you at least provide one, mm -hmm. right? And that's it's the entry point, right? If somebody comes to the code, it's the it's the universal check here first, right? So this is your chance to introduce the project. It's your chance to show basic usage, maybe mention a few problems. It's to tell you, you know, it's a good time for gotchas. Oh, do you want to run my test suite? You won't be able to do that until you blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all of that kind of stuff. This is your shot to handle it. I think it's just worth stating that. So I think it's pretty easy to put too little information into your readme. Have you ever run into an instance where you felt like there was too much in the readme? Rails. <laughs> <laughs> well played sir <laughs> yes um, yeah I think it's you can overwrite anything I think actually in Rails defense I believe they just rewrote the readme in, in uh, uh, Rails 4 to handle this exact problem okay so we, we still have more to cover so uh, can we move on from readme now sure where yeah. should we go next uh, I, I have something I want to mention as another kind of tool for uh, explaining or documenting code, and that's CRC cards. Hmm. So, so class class what? response. Yeah, yeah, just 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 hang with me for a moment. So All class right. Res right. class responsibility collaboration cards, otherwise known as Cunningham cards. Uh, so I, I've sat and worked with Word Cunningham trying to use CRC cards to collaborate things. So I got this straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, that you know his. You know, there's two ways you can look at using CRC cards. One, you can use them as a design tool, where you you help you uh, you know sort of use them to assist your thought process by making things more visible and a way to communicate with the people you're working with. Um, to, you know, you know. So uh, I had a friend who was a post-structuralist uh, doctoral student. She called that an object of shared discourse, <laughs> and that so they're great for that. But they're also I think even more useful to use to explain a design, and that because they're so dynamic and easy to manipulate in uh, sort of unexpected ways. And it, so Ward showed us when you know, he sat down and and we we took a design that we had that we we're having trouble working with, and he's like, Let, let's just write you know build some cards and document what you know like so we can see everything that's going on and see the relationships, and being able to get. You know everything concretely. You know, put onto a card, and and seeing how things interacted with each other was actually incredibly revealing for understanding the code. And you know, one of the tricks that I learned from that was I would walk around with a you know with a, a stack of CRC cards describing my software when I would walk into somebody's office for us to have a conversation about it, and then we would start putting them out on the table and and using them to to talk about the code. Sandy, so I, Sandy kind of talks about that in um, Pooter, right? Uh, about how you know visualizing the messages between objects really helps you understand the system in general. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a, a distinction question, Josh. Um, what you have described to me is what I understand CRC cards to be brilliant at, which is helping you analyze code. Do you feel that that's the same thing as documenting the code? I mean, would you keep the CRC cards around? After the project was done or mothballed or whatever, uh, after a while you just toss them. But okay, <laughs> but okay. Uh, but there there's certain kinds of conversations about code that they're incredibly useful for. Yes, yes. So, 
Okay. Yeah, I was I, just I, trying trying to imagine imagine you shipping the code along with like a a three ring binder with you know like all the little cards like laid out like photo in a photo album, you know. Yeah, there, I was going to ask: Is there a good way to virtualize those so that people the, can see them? The operative word there is good. <laughs> there, there, yeah. I, no, no, no. I, I've seen a lot of attempts to do CRC cards in software, and some of them are okay, and some of them are not okay. But I've never seen one that's like super awesome, excellent. If I just want to visualize the relationships, uh, my favorite tool would be OmniGraphle, and that I, you know, I can put the little mm -hmm. blocks and draw the arrows, and I love how I can end up moving this guy over later, and all the arrows just readjust without me having to do anything. Yeah. Awesome. So one other area I want to get to, I know we've been talking for almost an hour here, but uh, I want to talk about things like the Rails guides or the wikis on GitHub. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to bring up a similar thing in that, in that you do reach a level where things like books and stuff are almost required. You know, like Rails is so vast in scope. You know, like something like the asset pipeline is huge, right? And just to get your head around everything that's going on in the asset pipeline, um, what you just mentioned, Chuck, the Rails guides, it's, it's one of the best places to do that, right? Is they can write focused, you know, uh, documentation about specific sub-chunks of the system, right? Like chapters in a book. Right. So, so uh, is it, I guess the thing that I'm, I'm getting to now is that these, these tend to be like high-level, you know, explanations. Here's how you use the library or whatever. And, you know, at the lowest level in the code, um, I'm, I just wonder, is it appropriate or necessary or helpful to link out from the code that it's related to out to these high-level documents? Or are they completely separated uh, um, at the levels that they're at? I, I like to have them integrated. Yeah, I like cross-linking. Yeah. yeah, citations are, are very useful in both directions. The reason those documents rock is you read those and that gives you the context, yes. right? So yep. then you can go to the API documentation and understand what the heck is going on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I wish the Rails guides had more links into the API docs and vice Agreed. versa. Yeah. The, the, but the um, problem is, is there's no standard API documentation. There's API doc. There's RailsAPI.com. There's Rails. I mean, there's there's 17 different API docs. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Well, well, maybe uh, maybe our our next Rogues project is to you know try and sort out <laughs> how to how to how to do better integrated documentation. That's right. That's right. We yeah. we need to come up with a level two minion project now. <laughs> I have to say that the thing that I'm really enjoying about this episode is that. You know, I mean, we agree on some things and disagree on others, but ultimately we are highlighting as many of the problems with the documentation systems that are out there as, as you know, putting up, this is what these do well. And I, I just, yeah. I, I love kind of the way that, that this has flowed through that. So. Well, and, and like any software engineering issue, it's all about trade-offs and there's costs and benefits. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah, you, know, you want to be able to communicate about what your code is doing and what its requirements are and what the API is, and there's a cost to to accomplishing that, and but there but there's a benefit to it as well. And and I would even add that there are multi dimensions, multiple dimensions inside what you want to communicate and what the trade offs are. So there are times when a big honking inside Macintosh 
product or a big honking MSDN product is absolutely the right trade-off. And there are other times when a single-line comment that says, these numbers are effing magic, don't effing touch them, is the right trade-off. And, and, and these are completely different ends of the spectrum for trade-offs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there, there's multiple dimensions here, and they change over time and based on project. And yeah, just just be good, just be better programmers. Program better, guys. <laughs> yeah, do do better. Jeez, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think it's interesting too, though, that uh, you know wh where we really see them kind of fall apart is like the the little comments through the code or whatever to communicate to the other coders that are getting in, versus like the high. Uh, high-end, um, you know, API docs or guides or tutorials for, for people coming in. I mean, you're dealing with people at different levels, and when you have a project that is trying to communicate at all those levels, I think that's where we really see it, you know, get complicated to the point where we're saying, yeah, you know, this has this trade-off and this other one doesn't. That's true. It's, it's like almost like the scope of the conversation. There's in, in the project that Chuck and I are working on, I've seen now two or three times. No, I've seen ten, nine or ten times, and I have written two or three times um, a comment of, along the lines of, this is broken, and it needs to be fixed, and I don't have time because I'm focusing on this other task right here. And that comment goes into the code, and it stays in the code. And that is not... That is not a conversation between me and another programmer. That is a conversation that you need to freak the hell out as as team lead or as the project manager. That's a that is a absolute cry for help from the developer to project management to the team and scheduling. And so yeah, just remember that your 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 comments are at multiple levels of scope. I, I want to hit two more issues real quick. I know we're kind of over on time, but just uh, real quick. One I want to say is that don't underestimate different media. Like video is getting big, right? And we have things like the peep codes and stuff, which I think we can all agree Railscasts are valuable forms of documentation. There's definitely times in, in which those make sense, but also uh, they're being used in more and more areas. And, and uh, you know, I encourage people to think about that. A lot of times Aaron Patterson now, when he finds that, uh, a particularly troubling bug in Rails, or he's working on some new feature and he wants to give an early preview of it, he'll make a short little video, usually uh, to some awesome rock music in the background or whatever, uh, where he, and, and throw it up on the internet. And how genius is that, right? If it's a bug, then, uh, you know, and, and it turns out he's doing something wrong, then, you know, some pedantic person that watches it will be like, oh, yeah, well, you didn't, you know, whatever. But also, you know, sneak previews of features that he's implementing, they only exist on his machine, or, or even if they've been checked in, they might be hard for you to set up a similar scenario, whereas, you know, in two, three minutes, he can show you what this thing does and how it, how it works, right? That's kind of a powerful form of documentation, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yep. And blogs kind of fall under the same thing. You know, there's the documentation that's not necessarily, you know, I mean, sometimes it is, but not necessarily written by the people who wrote the code. But it's still valuable in the sense that it helps you gain context and get, get a handle on what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, that too. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, I've been getting pretty big into hypermedia APIs recently. Um, I read through uh, Steve Klodnik's Designing Hypermedia APIs, quote-unquote, book. Uh, which is really good. Um, but in doing that, I realized that one of the powerful things 
of them is how they kind of force the documentation issue, right? And that you you end up building this media type, um, which is how these uh, systems communicate with each other. And you almost have to document that media type, you know, especially if somebody else is going to be writing the other end of it. Um, so that, you know, you're explaining, I take these things and stuff. And I think that's kind of powerful from a documentation perspective. So it might be worth noting that, you know, some of these techniques we've been talking about lately, like SOA and stuff, can maybe help push you to do better documentation. Yep. Are there any other things that we need to go over before we wrap up? You said you had two areas you wanted to talk about. Were those the two? Those were the two. Yep, I'm done. I promise. I, I'm I'm done with my list too. Okay, good. I'm I'm not trying to rush to an end. I mean, I really don't have anywhere I have to be right now. But I I love I love the fact that we have too much to cover in too little time. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I I do have one tiny little footnote to add. So I'm gonna put on my um, gold chainmail bikini and uh, sticky bun hair so I can pretend to be Avdi, and uh, say that when you are documenting APIs, it's crucial that you document what exceptions are thrown. Yes. Yes. Mm, yes. And make sure those exceptions are sane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're the right exceptions. That yeah. always helps. Yeah, that's always nice too. Yeah, tag them with uh, some kind of module or something so I don't have to register everything I owe throws. Yes, exactly. Uh, right, so that's that's my last little footnote. Well, it's an important one, so glad we got it in there. All right, let's get to the picks. David, I'm going to start off with you. Okay, um, so I've been thinking really hard about what kind of deeply involved uh, programming-based pick um, I could pick today, and what I kind of came up with is uh, I, I talk about you know having this kind of odd sense of humor, and, and I, I know a lot of the listeners haven't noticed it yet, um, but if you listen for it, it's there. And Glenn Vanderberg, we were talking with him, and I don't know if it was on the show or if it was in the pre-call. But I mentioned that you know I I have an inner filter and people are like you have a filter and I'm like you should see the stuff that gets caught in it, and Glenn said no you have an inner goalie or somebody else had said you have an inner goalie, and it's not that your inner goalie is very bad, it's just that you get so many more shots on goal than other people and that is absolutely true of me, and and then I found out last week that I know exactly what my inner goalie looks like. So if you go to uh, YouTube. And just type in SGD, SGTK. That stands for Super Great Toilet Keeper. Yes, it's Japanese. It's a toilet that plays goalie. It's a robot toilet that plays goalie. So, of course, it's Japanese. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm not even going to comment. <laughs> I... I just, I, in fact, I'm just going to submit this without comment. It's, it's freaking hilarious. The only thing I will say is that my goalie is not as good as the, the SGTK. All That's right. my picks. All right. Hey, and he even did it fast. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that was one minute and 30 seconds. Woohoo! That's got to be good. a record. Okay, what are your picks? Gosh, I don't have much this week. I don't know. I guess I've been, I have been watching a show called Prime Suspect, which I guess is an NBC show. And, and uh, I, think, I think Liz Lemon mentioned it on, on 30 Rock as I was catching up on Liz 30 Rock. Liz Lemon! <laughs> Um, as, as some, you know, not so, not so subtle cross promotion. And, uh, and I went and looked it up on Hulu and, uh, it's, it's, it's a cop show. It's not bad. Good entertainment. I don't know. I don't have much programming related. I will say that I finally, after many years of, of kind of wanting one, I finally got my hands on a, um, a Wacom drawing tablet 
and it's it's been fun. I I don't do a lot of drawing, but uh, but some of the results of having that will will be popping up in, on on uh, Ruby Tapas soon. And uh, I think it's an it's an interesting it's interesting to have a tool for for scribbling. I think I feel like I don't do enough scribbling as a programmer, and I should probably do more. You know, putting my ideas down in in scribbled form rather than just like textual form, pictures and things. Awesome, Josh. What are your picks? Okay, uh, my first pick is for the Ruby Summer of Code 2013. So, have you have you guys heard about this yet? I heard about the last new one. Okay, so so yeah, so um, uh, Jeff Casimir from Jumpstart Labs is uh, one of the big guys behind this, and this is uh, this came out of a couple years ago. The you know Google does their Summer of Code every year, and where they pay college students to work on open source software throughout the year, and they they always tend to be really underrepresented for Ruby projects, and uh, I guess they rejected all of them one year, and uh, the Ruby community said, screw that, we'll do our own thing, and it was pretty good, and they're, um, so they're doing it again this year, and the amount of, uh, of code that, or money they're paying students is actually more than what Google pays their summer code people, so woohoo. Uh, the but uh, he gave a little uh, a little talk at one of the parties at RubyConf last week talking about this. So I have a link to the RubySummerOfCode.org website that I'll pop in the show notes, and um, and the timeline is they're raising uh, funding from sponsors in December. Uh, they're recruiting mentors in January, and students uh, go through the process of. Uh, Signing up and selection or applying and being selected in February and March, and uh, by the way, mentors also get paid. It's a it's a very small amount. It's not really adequate compensation for the time you spend, but uh, it'll it'll be a nice little thank you, I'm sure. So uh, I guess the the like people like companies that want to uh, sponsor, they should get in uh, the you know soon the um, so go to that site and there's a place where you can get on the email list and uh, they'll uh, they'll get in touch with you. Yeah, there was there was some terrific stuff that came out of the last one. So yeah, if you if you wind up sponsoring or mentoring, just a big thank you from us now. Yeah, definitely. There's also yes. a there's also a Twitter uh, thing that I'm gonna I'm gonna pop in here so you can follow them on on Twitter too. All right, good deal. So that's one, and then uh, the the other thing I want to pick is what, what's Amer- your what's your other pick, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> what? Burn! <laughs> Sorry, Wait, I couldn't help it. That was a burn on me. <laughs> Go ahead, Josh. Man, I'm sorry. I, I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. Did you have too much coffee today? <laughs> uh, I don't drink coffee. I haven't oh, had right. any caffeine today. That's probably my problem. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so uh, I was at RubyConf last week. Uh, you know, kudos to the team for a great conference. But one of the things that was awesome was that uh, there was a, a man there who was deaf, and they had sign language interpreters for him. And a lot of yes. people, were co- a lot of people were commenting on how awesome the interpreters were. And I just, I, I, I just got to back that up and say, I've, I actually spent a couple years studying sign language, and I'm not, I'm not super fluent in it, but uh, I can follow along uh, fairly well sometimes. And these were really great interpreters. So my pick for this week is sign language. And if you live in the United States, uh, we have our own flavor of sign language. It's called American Sign Language, and to. Uh, di- dispel the myth the most common myth or or uh or misunderstanding about sign language is that it's not universal 
every, you know, all the deaf people on the planet do not magically speak the same sign language. You know, every country has their own sign language. Um, and in fact, ours in America is much more similar to sign language in France than in Britain for historical reasons. Uh, but uh, it's great. Sign language, is, I, found, I found it was um, actually incredibly useful for my ability to speak publicly because uh, sign language engages your whole body in the communication. And I found that I was much more not only rela relaxed but dynamic on, when I was speaking on stage. It, it helped quite a lot. And, um, and it's also very useful to, to be able to sign with people, and more and more people are being able to sign. And uh, the, the other thing is that as I get older, I'm living in terror of losing my hearing because of all of the loud concert music that I listened to when I was young. <laughs> and my hearing kind of sucks, actually. So I've, I decided I would uh, get ahead of the curve and learn sign language before uh, my hearing went away entirely. And uh, you know, so help myself learn a, uh, a form of communication that can help supplant that. So I, I so I, I took some college, some uh, some classes in sign language at local colleges. If you if you live in a sizable population center, the odds are there's some place where you can go and take sign language classes. I haven't yet seen that there's anything online as a good resource for for just learning sign language, uh, you know, on a website or or by videos. Those things can be helpful to supplement your education, but it's there's no way that you can learn sign language without actually signing with other people. So, and so I was uh, pretending to be David Brady and had a really long pick for that. So that's it for me now. You can't pre you can't pretend to be me without sucking me into it, though. Um, <laughs> there's a, a television show on right now called Switched at Birth, and the mother and one of the daughters, I think, is deaf. And Marley Maitland, is, Maitland plays the mom, mm -hmm. and there are entire scenes that are completely silent. It's a it, it's an honest to goodness primetime U.S. TV show that has subtitles on it because. The the deaf community is involved in that or is, is portrayed in that show, and, oh, and Liz loves it. I, I haven't seen it because I've been heads down on this project, but she loves it and she's trying to get me to watch it because she keeps laughing at the the way they swear or the way they they sign things. It's great. <laughs> I yeah. gotta chime in. I gotta chime in here too. Uh, sorry for everybody piling on Josh's picks, but we did it with our kid uh, when we had the baby. We uh, got one of those sign language books that shows you. You know, and you start just trying to teach them, like, six things, you know, that are super relevant to them, you know, change my diaper, uh, milk, things like that. Uh, and it was really great. We signed to her from day one, and um, about five months in, she began to sign back to us uh, and seeing certain signs. And to this day, we actually have, like, a, an app on the iPad. She speaks great, of course, and, and mostly she doesn't sign these as much these days. Um, but uh, she will sit on the iPad and uh, play with this app that we have where you like click a word and it shows you the sign for it. And then every night and now and then we're just out and about and suddenly she'll sign airplane or something that she picked up from this app on the iPad. And when we were in Hawaii, the doorman was teaching her how to do the shaka, which is how Hawaiians wave to each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, she picked it up, like, immediately because, you know, she does that kind of stuff all the time. So uh, it, I've really enjoyed doing it with uh, my kid. Um, one, it allowed us to communicate with her earlier. Two, it's awesome to be able to give silent instructions across a room full of people and stuff like that. So, yeah, great stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, just one last little thing that you may notice as, as your daughter grows up that uh, – that there's been a fair amount of research showing that 
people who grow up signing, the linguistic parts of their brain get integrated with the visual centers of their brain the same way that hearing, speaking people integrate their linguistic center with their auditory center. And so, so people who've grown up signing, you know, deaf people, children of deaf adults, they score remarkably higher on visual acuity and visual pro processing exercises than the rest of us. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I, ha I have to say that uh, we did that huh. with my kids, not to the extent that it sounds like James did, but yeah, my one-year-old, every, everything he says, he says aloud as ma, but he'll <laughs> sign it. He'll he the signs are different. Yeah. And uh, I dated a girl in college that was deaf, and it's it's very interesting to see into that world and how the deaf community perceives the hearing community. Yeah, it's that, that that's like eight different podcast episodes. Yeah. It's, there's so much material yeah. there. But yeah. but I'm just saying that is a it, yeah. it, it really is a big big deal to have something like that. And uh, it also I also want to point out that I've had it also pay off. There uh, I've dealt with some disabled kids at, at the church here. Um, you know, being a scout leader and things, and um, it in a lot of cases they don't communicate well verbally, but they do communicate well through sign, and so it it also you know helps uh, people who can hear but can't necessarily communicate. So, yeah. And, and, yeah, and and you know every now and then you have to work with somebody who who is deaf, and you know just being able to communicate with them is great. Yeah, it makes so. a big difference. Anyway, James, what are your picks? Uh, okay, so I've got a few. Uh, the first one is uh, there was uh, some tweeting during RubyConf about uh, this talk that I guess Gary Bernhardt referred to in his talk at RubyConf. I haven't seen his yet because the videos aren't out. I'm sure it's great. Um, but I did go watch this other talk uh, called Integration Tests Are a Scam. Uh, and if you think the title is link bait, uh, wait till you get about 30 minutes into it and it gives you the mathematical proof of why integration tests are a scam. So uh, if I haven't hooked you with that, seriously, it's a great talk. Um, it's probably not as inflammatory as you're thinking, and it's really mind-stretching and, and good. Um, it's a little long, uh, so definitely set aside some time for it. Uh, but it's worth hanging through to the end, including actually a really good Q&A uh, after he does this big uh, talk. So if you want to uh, learn some about tests and how they work, that's great stuff. Um, then uh, my other two picks are a couple of games. The older I get, the less time I have for games, of course. So I try to pick the uh, smaller, faster stuff. Uh, and a couple of good ones I've gotten off Steam lately are FTL, which is just a spaceship game where you're fighting against other spaceships and you work on knocking out individual systems while repairing your ship and, and stuff as it goes along. It's got all these random events in it. But it's cheap, it's quick, um, and uh, it's one of those kind of, if you're an old school gamer like me, you'll appreciate it. It's, it's you know, 90% of the time you just die. And so it's just a question of how long before you die, you know, and, and kind of harsh that way. I, I enjoy that. Um, so that's FTL. The other one I've enjoyed uh, recently is called Tidalis, I guess. Tidalis is how you pronounce it. It's a, kind of a, a Bejeweled-like match three. I think it's Bejeweled. I can't remember. Uh, match three blocks are all the same kind of thing. Uh, but this one has quite a few twists on it, including these streams, which you can direct through the blocks and, and change around. You don't actually control, like, the falling blocks. Uh, you're doing something else. 
and uh, there's various blocks that change the way it works. Uh, it's got uh, puzzle modes, and then you know more like actiony, Tetrisy kind of modes. Uh, and it's got a multiplayer where you can play competitive or co-op on all of these different things. So pretty rich game there again for like five bucks. So uh, short, sweet. And what I love about both of these is I can fire them up, play for twenty minutes that I have, and and leave it without being too heartbroken. So uh, those are my picks. Great. All right. So I just have one pick this week. Um, I ran across a problem with my Magic Mouse. And uh, anyway, it would just quit quit uh, working with my computer, disconnect randomly. I checked the batteries and all that fun stuff. It's uh, magic. Yeah. There must have been some magic interference. Anyway, so I was chatting with a few people, and they told me to try the Magic Trackpad. So I replaced it with the Magic Trackpad, and I love this thing. It is, it's so nice. I think part of it's because I did programming almost exclusively on a laptop for a while. And so the gestures are, you know, pretty natural to me after using a Mac, a MacBook for that long. But uh, just all the different things that you can do with it. And the fact that they have the little videos in the preferences that show you what each one looks like and what it does is just, it, it's just awesome. So... That, that was some Apple Awesome that I, I really enjoyed. So um, anyway, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and we'll wrap this up. Do we have any announcements before we get off the show? Yes, we do. Um, when this comes out, you will have two days left, counting the day that it comes and the day after that, to vote for us in the podcast awards. Please go do so. Yep, we're all the way at the bottom under technology. And with that, we'll wrap up. We'll catch you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.